What's up, everybody? It's Miles Turner, the Indiana Pacers. You listen to the Pace Rules Podcast. Be sure to follow at Pace Rules on Twitter. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pace Rules Podcast, the only Australian NBA podcast with a bias toward the Indiana Pacers as season 2023-24 is finally upon us with Media Day and training camp in full swing. And who better to talk about both of those two things than a guy that is on the ground in in Indianapolis right now, our very good friend from the Locked On Pacers podcast, Tony East. Tony, firstly, welcome to you. Uh, How is the vibe in Indianapolis right now? It's great. Every team has a good... Well, if you don't have good vibes for training camp and media day, that's that's a that should be a red flag for your basketball team, right? Like even the guys who are in these competitions at positions for minutes the Pacers have coming, they all believe they can win it. They all think they fit well. So everybody's in a good mood. Pacers are grinding on the defense and the rebounding. They want to be better on that end, obviously. So it's it's a cheery time for these teams and the Pacers among them. Speaking of a cheery time, Anthony Richardson had a bit of a breakout game last week. So, uh, <laughs> Alex Riley, you are here and you are... I'm surprised that this is not just turned into a Colts podcast as well as a Pacers podcast. But I'll give you like <laughs> give you like 60 seconds to talk about Colts stuff and get it out of your system at the top. I thought we were going to turn it into a Bears podcast. Adam. <sighs> got to talk about your I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> See, okay. I went to one game. And I decided while I was in Chicago, I'd go to a Bears game. And I'm like, cool, I'll just adopt the Bears. They won a title in 86. That was the year I was born. Um, that was a terrible idea. They suck. They were, ter- they were a terrible team. I, I'm currently... Aren't, aren't they playing right now? Like right this second? Yeah, they're, they're, they're possibly the worst team of the last like 10 or 15 years. I think they have the worst record. So um, I am getting a divorce, uh, irre- irreconcilable differences from the Chicago Bears. And uh, I'm I'm probably courting the Colts right now as well. I'm just going to jump on the bandwagon. I'm, I, I live halfway across the world. I think I'm allowed to do that. And plus, I'm a, I'm a card-carrying Pacers fan. So makes sense, Alex. Yeah. I mean, can you jump on the bandwagon of a 500 team? Is that, yeah. is that a thing? Yeah, that's probably the best time to jump on the bandwagon because no one can accuse you of jumping on a bandwagon of a really good team at a really good time. This team could be really good. You never know. Hey, Jonathan Taylor's coming back this week. So, wow. Could be fun in the backfield. That's probably all the football talk we're going to say on this particular show. But I was going to ask how popular football is in the land down under. Really popular. Yeah, not as popular as basketball, I would say, but it's it's really popular. We just had. Speaking of American sports, we just had the LA Kings and the Arizona Coyotes down here for two games in Melbourne. Uh, so wow. all American sports running wild down here. It's great. Yeah, I can't tell you anything about hockey. <laughs> it's not that I don't like it. I just don't know a lick about it at all. Indy's not really a hockey town, is it? Really? Yeah. No. It's weird. Like a lot of surround, like in Chicago, hockey is really popular. All the northern yep. states, it's really popular. But Indiana is like, the barrier of, yep. of where hockey stops. So that's because in 49 states, it's just basketball, right? And that's right. in it's Indiana, it's not a hockey town. The religion. The Fever played their games for two years in a hockey arena when Gamebridge was under construction. That is my only uh, alignment only with hockey. Okay. In recent cool. time. <laughs> well, let's get into the agenda here because we've got plenty to talk about. Um, Tony, you've, you're obviously a... Uh, veteran now of media days and training camps and and that vibe. Uh, I want to get off the top. Who's impressed you the most from training camp? 
And this could be on court or off court. This could be like the funniest player you've seen. This could be the guy that you say has come in like locked in, locked and loaded and ready to compete. Like who who has stood out to you? Uh, in the limited things we can watch and what we can hear from players, Bruce Brown would be my first answer. It seems like everybody is impressed that he can just kind of do whatever they need, right? Like his shooting yep. looks good. His defense is a great fit for them, but also something that's like a watch and learn kind of thing. Like other guys are getting better defense from that. Ben Matherin, (laughs) I have to specify which Ben now, which I'm not used to yet. (laughs) Matherin talked about that being helpful for him, especially when they do these new one-on-one drills going against someone like Bruce Brown, who is, you know, not the most physical defender, but good on the ball and pressures. He just fits really well with everybody. So I think he's provided a, a new element and a new, you know, one of the, what's the phrase rising tides, raise all ships, like one of those kind of deals for everybody where, because he's good on both ends and fills so many roles, he's impressed a lot of people. Uh, I I've been of the opinion all summer that he's going to start. I think that's pretty locked in at this stage, at least early in the season. We'll see where that ends up slotting as the time goes on, obviously, but he's been one. Uh, OB has impressed people. They haven't had a guy like him. <laughs> yeah. Since I've covered the team at all really, but um you know, the, the inside out ability he has, I, I did a whole story about his pairing with miles. Cause I wanted to dive into that. And they've both kind of been impressed with how they can fit with each other. Those two, I think would be the first two, but I can't tell if they're just getting a lot of impressive buzz from the team because they've been good or because they're new, right? Because they're the new yeah. guys that no one has anything to compare them to, uh, of the young guys, you know, all of them have gotten at least some amount of buzz from someone, um, Matherin's doing good in the one-on-one drills. Nemhard looks more composed. You know, you've heard a little bit about everybody, so it's hard to say. So I guess I'll just Tyrese Halberton still looks really good to everybody, which <laughs> he's only 23. That still matters no. for the young guy. No, just Halliburton <laughs> looks good. I'm shocked. Alex, Did you guys see him do that reverse dunk today in the, yeah. the video they posted. So this guy good. plays two training sessions with Obi Toppin, and now he's in the dunk contest, man. Yep. I actually I asked and confirmed that the heel the Halberton dunk contest still a thing, and they were tracking international dunks. So the the Bahamas and USA games mattered quite a bit. So nice. Allie's bounce will matter. Lobs are contagious. That's uh, that's the new <laughs> slogan this season. Um, Alex, I want to talk about Matherin quickly. He he's a guy that we're going to talk about in every episode of this show in some form or fashion, because I feel like he has the most pressure. He has the most expectation and he's also the barometer of this team. If he improves to the level that people would like him to improve, then this team is, you know, staring down the barrel of a a home playoff series uh, or a home play in at the very least. So, you know, uh, a top six seed, Um, what say you, on uh, on Matherin. Well, if the team hasn't been talking about defense, they've been talking about Matherin. So he he seems to be the guy. I don't know if the front office would say this, but he's kind of the the biggest question mark I think for this season in terms of how good, as you said, they can be. Can they be a top six seed? Uh, everyone is talking about him trying to improve on the defensive end. I know they all are as a team. Uh, Rick Carlisle's kind of already sick of hearing about it. I'm sure you're aware of that, Tony. Um, but for, for Matherin, he seems to want the challenge, right? And I think that's the the biggest thing is, yeah, it's easy to say, oh, well, this guy has to get better defensively. This guy does. But do they actually want that challenge? Do they want to take that personally? And 
Benedict seems like that guy. Um, I was laughing the other day, setting the pace, we're interviewing him. And I think he brought up 1v1s against about four or five people. And he had to make sure he, like everyone knew, hey, I beat this guy. Lou Dort, I beat him. Uh, this dude, Clay Thompson, they didn't post the 1v1 where I beat him. So I, I love the competitive mindset of Mather and the paces. Uh, I don't know if they've had a guy like that that will just talk to anyone. Like he will talk crap to anyone. So uh, yeah, I think it'll be a big year for him. The playmaking, the ball handling. That's also what I'm uh, I'm super intrigued by. And Obi, Alex, if there were, if you um, still bought Pacers jerseys, which you don't anymore because we're both cursed, <laughs> um, then I imagine that you would buy an Obi Toppin jersey um, just for your benefit, Tony. The last three jerseys I've purchased. Thank you. I was going to ask. Been, I needed more on uh, this. Goga Batatse, Victor Oladipo, and Chris Duarte. So um, I no longer buy Pacers jerseys. That's wow. That's just it. I think until they change their design, I blame the design more than anything else. The circle. Um, we've talked about how their jerseys are some of the worst in the league on this show, and they need a facelift desperately. But if you were buying a jersey, Alex, would it be Obi Toppin? No, I'm with you. I'm not buying any jerseys anymore. <laughs> I bought a Halliburton jersey one week before that Knicks game. I bought a TJ Warren jersey about two weeks before he never played again for the Pacers. So. Yep. Yeah, I, uh, I think I'm retired. At what point do you guys start buying like other team player jerseys? I'm thinking about it. I've got a. I've also make it an advantage. The two jerseys I purchased prior to that were a Brogdon and a Sabonis. So I mean, I I don't have anyone that is still on the team right now. Um, it's just a fact of the modern NBA. But speaking, I was going to say this is like an indictment of the NBA. Like, yeah, people can't yeah. get attached to these players. It's a problem, I think. Continue, and, sorry. And given that um, we can never find Pacers jerseys, we almost have to get them custom made every single time. It's uh, it can be a little challenging. I'm still the only person that owns a Goga Patate jersey uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, and my good friend Tom <laughs> Hirsch told Goga this in uh, in Japan. Um, so I'm grateful for that interaction as well. Um, I want to talk about. Obi Toppin, Alex, uh, probably no one more hype for Obi than than you this season. Seems like he's got the starting power forward spot uh, locked down uh, as we enter the season, and we're going to get into some positional battles here in a moment. But what are your expectations for Obi heading into this season, Alex? Yeah, I think Justin might have me beat. He's wanted Obi on the paces for a couple of years, but I just think it's the opportunity to play consistently like consistent minutes. It's not even about starting or coming off the bench in New York. He was playing 31 game, getting five, the next in garbage minutes. So just playing, whether it's again, the the starting four spot, or if Jarrus comes in at some point, Obi still going to get consistent playing time. And that's the biggest thing. And Tony, I'll let you touch on this more because I know you did write an article about the fit, but in theory, it should be a good fit with miles. They can both space. Obi was talking about this. The other day, you know, because of Miles' spacing ability, and I did laugh that he talked about Taj Gibson being the best floor space that he's played with, which, like, no, Obi. Wow. He's um, right. I'll explain in a second, but he's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the bar is pretty low, I think, for him. But just playing with a floor spacing big that's also a rim protector is something that he hasn't been able to do. But, yeah, Tony, you can touch on this fit more. Well, he's right at, about Taj. So he, in his... About 3,000 minutes, five centers with the Knicks. We played them for more than 100. Um, those bigs went seven for 28 from three. We're talking about 3,000 minutes of Toby Tobin's career, right? 
Uh, of those seven, or no, eight for 28, excuse me. Of those eight makes, seven were Tosh, seven for 16. <laughs> that's oh, 43%. That's crazy. So I laughed. I laughed when Obi said that. But when I looked up the numbers, I was like, okay, he's right. Taj was stepping out, apparently. <laughs> These guys were sharing the floor. Yeah, Turner last season alone made, quick math, 11 times more threes than that just last season, right? And they're not going to share the floor forever, but. In theory, that's already the best spacer he's ever played with. So I think naturally they both provide an inside-outside element that is a good one-two punch. That should help Toppin a lot just from a space perspective. That's why the first day I asked him about what he thinks his strengths are in the half court, right? Because that is an important you know, follow-up from that is, okay, you have the space. What, what can you do well with it? But I do wonder, like I think it's a good fit. I think they'll play well off of each other, but... You know, only one of them, you, you don't, two guys don't set a screen at the same time, right? Like one of them spacing and one of them is setting the screen or vice yep. versa. Like if one of them is clearly better than the other at one of those things, like what does that mean for the other person? How do they decide how often to, to balance those things, right? Like Sabonis was clearly a better screener. So top, so Turner was spacing a lot, right? Like I'll be, that is the dynamic. I don't know about how overlapping they could or could not be, but in terms of if, if they're, roughly equal as as screeners and what that allows Halberton to do with the starting five. Like they seem like good fits in that they can both play inside out and not get in each other's way while still being good finishers around the basket. I want to move to Buddy Heald because we haven't had an opportunity to talk about his potential trade request. Uh, and we're talking about a positional battle right now, and there's probably no greater positional battle than Heald, Brown, Matherin, Nimhard, that wing rotation for the Pacers, we know that we have a clear positional battle of power forward. We know who the starting center is. We know who the starting point guard is. And we probably know who the starting wings are, but it's still kind of up for debate. And there's that extra wrinkle of, of Buddy potentially leaving the team. Tony, what struck me from media day was how positive everyone was about wanting to have Buddy on this team. There was no real sort of admission that he was even up for trade. Uh, and he also seemed pretty positive. So he's being a good citizen right now, which you have to appreciate as a fan that he's, you know, being a professional um, because he is, he's been around for a long time. So how do you see this playing out? Do you see the current starting lineup being the starting lineup for game number one? And is Buddy on this team in... At Christmas, even? Good questions. So, I like, it's been reported, like, they offered him an extension. Yeah. So, clearly, the Pacers did have interest in having him beyond just this coming season, right? And the way Buddy has talked about it is like, yeah, I, I like being on the Pacers. You know, he's not, mm. he likes playing. <laughs> and he's still the first guy in the gym every day, getting his trillion threes up. I wonder how many threes that, I wonder if the most threes Buddy healed shot in one day is more than I've shot in my whole life. Um, he's always in the gym. So I don't think there's going to be any strife from that, but I don't even necessarily know that buddy Hill's like, if you're not going to extend me, trade me or the Pacers were like, we have to search for a trade now. I think it was just like the natural sequence of events because his contract is expiring. Well, it's like, well, if we can't extend him at the number that we offered, we go to the next step. And because it's just the natural extension, it's not like it's a rush, right? It's not like buddy Hill was like, I'm insulted by this offer and I want to be somewhere else right now where the Pacers were like, well, we should do this now. There is time, right? We saw this last year with Miles Turner, although there was no extension offer before the season where they looked miles apart before the season, 
that's funny miles and miles um do i say kilometers here actually is that like kilometers that apart yeah yeah that's right is that a phrase that's actually used kilometers apart meters apart yeah meters yeah. apart yeah <laughs> has anyone ever said kilometers or meters turner is that a thing that that happens anyway um <laughs> i think they have now yeah kilometers turner Okay. His situation obviously changed. So it's not like over, but obviously it, if there's no extension to be had, they'll have to think about it, especially more closer to the trade deadline. So your by Christmas question, my answer would be depends how good they are. <laughs> you know, if they're absolutely killing it, then no, he, he would be on the team, I would imagine. Uh, and if they're 500, then it's more likely to be dealt. And if they're stinking it up, well, the sooner you can trade them, the higher his value is. So yeah, uh, I think that would depend on how well they're playing by the trade deadline all depends on the extension, right? And they're thinking long-term. The front office said it. And I get that they might want to make the playoffs this year and be a better team. And that's great. And Buddy Heald can help with that with his shooting. But if he's coming off the bench and his defense is still a negative, like you got to try to get value for every expiring contract you can if they're thinking long-term. So the trade deadline is really the date that I'll be intrigued by, but it could all depend on how well the Pacers are doing. But like you said, I think the good part is it, it's kind of a dead story until something changes yeah. because he's still buddy healed as usual. The team can still progress. Like there's no strife, which is good for the Pacers. Getting into capology for a second, the, the Pacers could in, could raise Buddy's salary this season, right? They've got a little cap room to be able to play with. So yeah. they, it, it's probably similar to the Turner extension of what they'd be looking to uh, negotiate with Buddy, right? I don't know that, but I would guess that just yeah. because it's smart to do that if you can. I mean, how about Tasmania, Tony? I'm guessing everything here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be my guess. Um, it just makes the most sense, right? It's good use of your space. And yeah. because they, I mean, they've never said this, but like it's very obvious by their contracts that they they have cap space goals next year, right? So if you can do what you did with Turner and drop his salary a ton the next year, then you still have as much of that as you can. So I don't know that, but that would be what I imagine. Now, the trouble is there's these new extension rules where you can get a 40% raise on the last year of your deal. So if his contract drops by too much, it's actually harder for him to extend again mm. in the future, yep. right? So there's a lot of push and pull with with the new rules. Like you saw with Devin Vassell, his, con his new extension is declining, declining. And then the last year, it jumps back up because then he has more extension options off of that deal, right? So yep. there's a lot going on with this. Uh, in theory, but I, I would guess just because they have the resources to do it and it's smart that they would at least try a renegotiation extension and he doesn't want to do it. There's nothing you can do. Alex, you want Buddy on this team. I think I want Buddy on this team. He's a great shooter. As we know, you always need a knockdown shooter on, on a team to be successful. Uh, do you see him on this team by the trade deadline? Mm, actually, yeah, I think they will. I also think like Tony, you know, if they're in a situation where they are actually playing really well and they're fighting for a, a six spot or they're in that seven, eight range and trying to get home court for the, uh, for the play. And they might just say, Hey, we'll, we'll keep buddy and figure out what to do with him after the postseason. Uh, you know, if we lose him for nothing, that wouldn't shock me the most. Uh, I think it's a little bit different than miles. Miles had more value. Uh, I also think it might be a situation where playoff teams, at the deadline, say, hey, we desperately need shooting and we'll uh, we'll give you more than what we were offering four months ago. So, yeah, it, it makes sense for the Pacers to just hold on right now. And it's uh, it, it's just interesting to see what Buddy does because there was that situation in Sacramento 
And I don't know how much of that was the coaching staff or how much of it was him wanting to be a starter versus coming off the bench. But uh, as I've said on the podcast, if he's willing to accept that backup role, he, he's spacing and what he does to the offense, the movement is pretty close to irreplaceable. Tony, I'm I'm interested in the the transition from more offensive lineups to more defensive lineups this year for the Pacers. We, we've you know we could go down the track of talking about Rick Carlisle's answers. Of course, he's going to say that he's got a really talented team and that they're going to improve. But you know, it's it's in the personnel, and we've spoken about Buddy's deficiencies on that end. I think Tyrese has shown signs of some improvement on that end, and he'll need to improve. Uh, consistently a, a little more, um, but particularly with Matherin in the lineup, who has also not shown that he can be a really consistent contributor on that end. Bruce Brown will help. Um, do you think the Pacers will lean more toward surrounding Halliburton with uh, better defenders this season more often than not, or um, will they be able to strike that balance? This is something Dustin Dopirak with the star has been all over, right? Like he asked Chad Buchanan and, and Rick, I think like the Pacers best five man defensive lineup, right? P- think of who you think it is in your head. Oh, well, I, I don't have to go through every player. Yeah. And then the Pacers five best offensive players in a lineup. Yeah. The only player who's probably in both of those is miles, right? Yes. Like the other four, are probably all different players. So that is actually a tricky balance for them to figure out this year. Like they have a lot of good situational lineups, but figuring out the blend is particularly tricky. Bruce Brown is is good at both. Like it's not like they're sunk. Andrew Nemhart's good on both ends, but you know, figuring out how that all balances is is a key part of their success with groups this year. So I think I would skew having defense on the floor with Halberton because he makes everybody good on the offensive end. Like even if you're not naturally an offensive player, you Yep. Get the ball at the right time. You're open. If you're ready to shoot and you catch, you're going to have, you know, feet of space to get it up. If you cut at the right time, he's going to find you. Like, you don't need as much self-creation juice from the other four players because Halberton can do a lot of it himself with his manipulation and speed and randomness and just chaos. Chaos in a good way. So that's why I, like, wonder what that will look like as the season progresses because Toppin certainly fits at his best with Tyrese Halbert, but he's not the defensive four they could choose. So how does that work? But if he's you not useless, you, you got, I'm saying no less important of an offensive player without him. Like, how do they balance that? I don't know how to answer that right now. Cause I've never seen them play together, but like that will be the kind of decisions I think they're making all year. I would skew guys who are defensive focused with him because then you can hide him and, and Halliburton's best defensive strengths is like, he can read the game really well. So off ball, he's much better than on the ball right now. So if you can have him, Bruce Brown, and you know anyone else who's a good defender and put the other two guys in the backcourt on ball handlers, you can put Halbert in somewhere else where he's more impactful playing the way that he's the best. So that's where I would skew, and that's why I think we you already alluded to it. Matherin's defensive growth this year is kind of important because it would allow that exact situation to happen with what they're already deciding to do. But that's going to be their burning question beyond – what I said with their five-man units being different is how good can they be defensively with what they have? They don't even know. And if it's all on, you know, guys taking a step forward who can't, then Halliburton lineups, it won't matter who he's playing with. They're not going to defend well enough. The power forward position comes up at this quick point as well, Alex, because Obi, funnily enough, post-All-Star break, had a better defensive rating than Julius Randle, than Mitchell Robinson, than Jalen Brunson last season. So it's not as if he's... Um, 
going to be a, necessarily a, a great minus at uh, at his position. But Jarris Walker was drafted for his ability to play great defense um, and his defensive upside. So how do you see that shaking out? And do you see if this team starts leaking points, are they going to have to make a change at that position first? Or does it come uh, as a, a Nemhard uh, introduction into the starting lineup? Like what? who's the first player that would potentially come into this lineup if defense is a problem? Hmm. Actually kind of a tough one. Uh, it's similar to last year, isn't it? Where Sticks was in the starting lineup. I don't know the exact amount of games, but they figured out pretty quickly that him and Miles, that it just wasn't going to work. So it wouldn't shock me if this starting five is not the starting five for, you know, 20 plus games. If it is that bad defensively, they want to be around the top half of the league. I would imagine uh, how realistic that is with Toppin, Halliburton and Matherin in the starting lineup. Uh, it's a bit of a question mark, right? Uh, they want to play a different defensive style and Miles and Bruce are going to have to carry a lot of that. But yeah, I, I do also think it's how much of a leap Matherin takes. If he's, as as we're hoping, if he does take that two-way leap, I think Toppin's fine in the starting lineup. If he doesn't, and if he has all the lapses that he had a year ago, then all of a sudden you're looking at three guys who uh, uh, probably either league average or just below league average defensively. And I actually like the Nemhard shout. I think, yeah, everyone will probably expect the four spot to be the one that changes, but Nemhard started 60-odd games a year ago. I know Rick Carlisle loves having multiple ball handlers out there. Uh, Bruce can play make for you, good in the short role, obviously. But yeah, Nemhard's a guy who can guard multiple positions. And also, I don't know how much Rick's going to trust. This is kind of a cop-out answer, but how much he's going to trust a rookie given his past. I don't want to get too much into it, but obviously with Dallas, that was one of the biggest things. And yeah, do you, I mean, I'll ask you, Adam, do you think he'll trust a 20-year-old? Is Jarris 20? I think he turned 20, didn't he? Yeah, Is he, he going to trust him in the starting lineup as they're trying to make the playoffs? Look, I think he trusted Emhard. That's that's probably the only answer mm. I can give. Um, he was Nemhard, an older a, rookie, though. I a little older, that. yeah. So a little more mature. Um, and... I think the the question I have is that, you know, Jarris looked obviously really comfortable in summer league um, at different points, but uh, this probably goes for all the rookies, Tony, uh, are any of them ready to play significant minutes based on what you've seen so far? Like I'm talking, you know, 15 to 25 minutes a game at this stage. I think Jarris is uh, because he's huge. He's just a, <laughs> that just a big bat. dude. <laughs> it's wild to like we've this is a four four three practices in a media day but like every time we go in the gym at the end he him and miles are doing some drill where they're just dunking like constantly <laughs> a lot of lobs are in it um so he just looks so bouncy he said that um his elbow's all good he used to like he said i i, I hope i described this well so he said when he used to shoot, like at the end when it was fully extended, he'd like feel something right in his elbow. No longer. That's fixed. Um, and I just think guys like him, you, this was summer league, but he did this in college too. Like they just blow up plays because they're huge and they're fast and they're in the way. And you can't just like go through them or around them. You have to work. 
to score. Like he's just he's just gonna blow up a pick and roll every game, or you know, jump in a passing lane at the right time, or just be a truck in the paint. I guess can you be a truck on defense? <laughs> I don't know. But either way, that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah. makes me think he's gonna play a good amount. I don't know how much, right? We've seen Duarte and Matherin play like 28 minutes a game as rookies, but those Pacers teams weren't supposed to be as good as this Pacers team is. I guess two years ago they were supposed to be all right. And Duarte played a good amount. So I don't think he'll get up to 28 minutes just given the Pacers roster, unless he gets minutes at the backup five, which I don't think that'll happen right away, maybe at some point this season. But I think he'll play a good amount. He looks like he's ready to do that. Uh, there'll be a lot of offensive questions. Can he shoot? Can he pass? What does it actually look like? But I think the defensive playmaking, especially for a team that likes to run in transition, is going to be great, and that's going to make him stand out. I think the other thing we've got to consider here, the, the elephant in the room for this team for me is rebounding because you've got a center that averaged you know, nearly six rebounds a game after the All-Star break. Now, granted, he only played 12 games, but has never been an incredible rebounder, Miles. It's it's never been his greatest strength. Um, and we leaned a lot on Domas during that time to provide big rebounding numbers. So the question becomes who rebounds for this team. And, you know, Bruce Brown can, can chip in there. Um, but it, it might come down as well, Alex, to out of Obi and Jarris, who cleans the boards um, with Miles out there and who can control the boards or help the team control the boards better because that might be the better fit. I was going to say, I don't know how many defensive rebounds Obi's going to be crashing. He's already yep. he's already at the other hoop. He's already at the other end That's of the right. floor. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I also think it's in question the backup five spot, right? Like, that's why I keep talking about Isaiah Smith and even nice. a world champion, world champion Daniel Tice. Right. Um, he played really he, well in in the World Cup, guys. Like, you've got to you yeah. got to say he was the starting center for the World Cup winning team at the end of the day, and he played his role extremely well. And every team needs a guy who objection does not care objection. about scoring. Yep. Please. He was the starting power forward. Okay. For he was, world. yeah. Yeah. Jens was the, uh, was the other big man. Yes. Johannes Voigtman. If you're listening, yeah. we apologize. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get he it. He did play I, a lot of center. I he, love he that. Can, he can. And, and look, <laughs> I think it's important to have guys out there that don't really care about anything other than rebounding and doing the little things. And Tice is one of those guys. Um, and we don't have many of those guys on this team. We have guys that have to contribute in other ways. Whereas when you send Tice out there, he's got to crash the boards, uh, foul someone six times, and get it, <laughs> make an occasional offensive play. Like it's it's the old school backup big man role. Yeah, they need a uh, James Johnson last year would check in for two minutes and already have two hard fouls. Yes, <laughs> set the tone. Yeah. Oh, but Tony, how do you see that backup spot at the center position playing out? Because it is an interesting one. I know they tried to play Smith at the four, but I just think all three of those guys are, are much better suited to playing five. Yeah, they're out of they're out of those creative options, right? Like they started Smith at the four for whatever it was, twenty five games last year. They talked about Jackson playing the four when they drafted him. Well, now they have Jarris and Obi, and hey, Neesmith's pretty good at the four. War is on the team, yeah. like. They can't. They cannot go big anymore. Just given what they've done, so now the back of five battle becomes even more important for those two. And Tice, I think that position or those minutes will be the most telling thing about what the Pacers view as their objective this year. Kind of, kind of. I have to go a little longer than that because yep. 
win right now. We're trying to be as many wins as we can this year. Pick is Tice, right? He's the best of the three. I don't think anyone can dispute that. Like he was just awesome for Germany. Like you said, did a lot of stuff was canon. It looked like, I think he made every elbow jumper. He took the entire tournament. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. Um, just about. The screens are awesome. Like he's good on the glass. That's a good player. There are like, that's not all of the discussion. Cause there is fit stuff. He even joked about like, Oh my gosh, our team plays so fast. I'm only going to be able to play for five minutes. Like he's definitely better on slow paced teams. So the fit isn't awesome. Uh, and the younger guys are, are worse than him, but they're younger and they can develop and they have invested resources via a trade and a contract in Smith. And they traded stuff to get Jackson in the first round of a draft, right? Like they clearly believe in those guys. They picked them and acquired them. So they have the potential to develop. Now it's not just about like if they're trying to win, it's Tice. And if they're not, it's the young leagues because the talent gap isn't huge, right? It's not like it's like Tice is, an awesome backup center and the two young guys stink, but they're developing like the talent yeah. gap. Isn't so big that it's crazy to think that Isaiah Jackson's athleticism makes him a better fit with second unit. Or if Jalen Smith even becomes a 33% shooter again, he's the best backup center they have. So I don't think it's fair to just say like, Oh, he's the best backup five. If they're trying to win, he gets the spot because they're the talent gap isn't enormous, but I do think that will be telling on what they're thinking about this season is who they picked there. It's hard to say right now because they're mixing and matching a lot of their groups in practices to say who's been doing the best, but they were all pretty confident, which is both good and bad. I think, I think it's good because you need to be confident. If you're not, that doesn't bode well for you getting minutes anyway, but it's bad because only one of them is actually going to get the minutes. Injuries will happen. They'll all play at some point this season, but you know, it's funny because I asked Jalen Smith what it would take for him to earn the backup center role. And he said, I'll have to work really hard and give maximum effort. And it's like, okay, true. And I asked Isaiah Jackson the same question, and he gave almost verbatim the same answer. That's great. What if you both work really hard and give your maximum effort? Then who gets it? Like, it's just, there's just so many ways it could go. And yeah. I think that it's just going to be, a, a, like, there's a couple tells, like Isaiah Jackson's team options at the end of this month, right? If they decline that, they shouldn't pick him. Right. So there's a couple ways we could yep. figure it out a little early, I suppose, but there's no wrong answer or right answer. And that's why I think it could just be like maybe in the preseason, they trial three and they just keep mixing and matching until they figure it out because they all are totally different players. They all bring a lot of different stuff to the table. There's contract stuff involved. Like I have, I, I shouldn't say this because my job is to know as much <laughs> as I can about this team, but I truly have no read on who it's going to be. Like it's really hard to figure out who they're going to pick. I, I struggle with it too. I, I mean, I, We've always been a fan of Isaiah Jackson on this show, but, you know, Tice barely playing, playing one game post-trade um, for the Pacers and only playing 16 minutes in that game. It just struck me as as an interesting move and, of course, made sense because they, they were trying to make sure that they could give the young guys as many minutes as they possibly could. But I, I think if you're trying to win, and this team has to be trying to win this season – they've said that they're trying to win this season, then Tice has to feature, even if it's five minutes a half, even if it's, you know, three minutes a quarter, um, you know, I think he has to be a part of this lineup in some way, if only so you can see if it works uh, because you haven't given him an opportunity to be able to see if it does work. And he's a veteran and he played really well in the World Cup and sometimes that results in players having a really good season and sometimes it's a red herring. But I think you have to at least trot him out in the preseason and play him some minutes yes. and see how he goes 
with these other guys because he may have chemistry with some of these guys that you don't know until he hits the court. Um, and Alex, I know that Daniel Tice isn't the most exciting name. It's not the most sexy name to be trotting out as your backup center or your backup to backup center. But if you want to win games, then he's done plenty of that in Boston. Well, actually, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but the fact that he's still even on the team to me yeah. shows that I don't know if they trust either of the other backup options. Uh, maybe that's too harsh. Uh, I thought that they were trotting him out last year in those games just to show, hey, contenders, he's still healthy, he's still an NBA player, and then we just kept him. So, yeah, I, I don't know how much faith the front office has in in the young guys. Uh, we might also see Oscar get some minutes. I don't know. He, he's pretty funny dude. He, he can rebound. So that backup five spot is, is definitely an interesting one. Uh you said uh, like a Dewan Blair type cameo from Oscar this season, where he gets like twenty rebounds in one of the first games <laughs> of the year. I love that. It's funny that we're having this discussion though, because I, I can just see Brad Stevens saying, "Hey, let's go get Daniel Tice. We need a backup big. Yeah, let's just go get him back in uh, in green." So who knows? We'll we'll see what happens. A couple of second round picks, and and it's probably done. Let's go to prediction time as we wind down this episode. Uh, Tony, we're going to start with you. What's your prediction for the Pacers' finish and record this year? And then we'll go wider into the NBA. Um, it's it's an interesting season. We've seen a lot of predictions from people predicting the Pacers to, to finish a lot higher than last season, to finish about the same and still develop. Um, I probably sit somewhere in the middle of that, but interested in your thoughts. Okay. I ran through the schedule. This was before the Celtics got Drew Holiday and the Bucks got Damian Lillard. So the league's a little different than when yeah, I did the exercise. Slightly. I got 40 wins going through it. 40. Uh, so 40 and 42. Three gotcha. win improvement. Um, here's the thing. The Pacers got better. You know who else got better? The Bucks, the Celtics, yep. the Cavs, yep. the Knicks. Like yep. basically every nine Sixers team in the top 10 last year. Better. Like, yeah, we got better. And the Raptors. So it's still hard. Like the East is still good. So I think they're better. And the thing I've been telling people is I think there are more ways that they go way over their projections and under just because they're a young team, right? There's a lot more ways for young players to get better and a team to be better than them to just like fall off a cliff all of a sudden, unless the buddy Halliburton dynamic was like the most important thing ever. So 40 and 42 is what I got. I think that that would be enough to catch Toronto. I think that already is enough to catch Chicago. And then, the Brooklyn Nets, I just kind of shrug. They won 44 last year. They have good players, but a lot of those 44 came with KD and Kyrie. So given the state of East, I would say if they get to that 40 to 42 range, that's somewhere eight through 10, right? If you get to 45, yeah. you're probably in that seven, eight, nine range. Like Atlanta's probably a bit ahead of them on paper right now, but who knows if that lasts and if they're closer to 40, then they're probably hoping to get nine or 10, but there are the teams they can catch, I think are, really obvious and their talent is definitely good enough to be a, you know, a five win at least jump team, but they got to do it. And young teams, you never know. You just never know. Alex, where do you see the paces? Mm, I don't want to go too crazy boys. I don't want to go too crazy. I'll do say, it. Do it. No, I'm going to say 48, 48, and 48. That's and crazy. That. That's 13 wins more than last season. Is that the craziest thing? Maybe it is. I don't know. One you team, one team does it every year, man. They just yeah, go yeah. way so up. I'm yeah, a fan I, of I think it. We're the, I think we're the kings from from a season ago. So that's that's my semi hot take. Wow. What about you, Adam? You said you're somewhere in the middle. 
Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm I'm slightly over 500. I'm like 42, 43 wins. Um, and you know, I think the opportunity there with the parity you have in the East is to sneak into the seven seed, host a playing game, and get into you know a series against Milwaukee or Boston, which um, you know is could be eerily reminiscent of the series against Chicago about 12 or 13 years ago. Um, we have a bunch of young guys going up against um, a juggernaut of a team and making some noise. Um, that's, I think, I would love to see that from this team. I would, um, you know, previously in previous seasons when we've been built to win, we've said how we don't want to be the tough out. Um, if we do sneak into the playoffs, if we can push one of the best teams in the league to six, seven games in the first round and make some noise, that is a significant jumping off point for the next season. Um, and I see that as a really positive thing. I think if you, um, if you do as a fifth or sixth seed, everyone, pre- you know, kind of predicts that it's going to be a tough series, but if you can make some really good waves against the best teams in your conference, then I think that's enticing. If I'm the most optimistic of the three of us, uh, first of all, we might be in trouble, but <laughs> Secondly, uh, if we go against against the Bucks, are we winning. I don't know if we're winning more than one game. Like Giannis, um, Tony, you said this on your podcast the other day, but we already struggled with the Giannis Bucks. I, I don't want to watch <laughs> us play against Damian Lillard and Giannis seven times or four times or whatever it is. Andrew Nimhart uh, and Jarris Walker are going to get a lot of minutes in that series. That's that's all. Jarris is the best size guy they've had to put on Giannis in yes. forever. He's a rookie, so he's not going to do. Tony, well. I've but been like... saying this for four. We've been doing this podcast since 2019, August 2019. We just had a four-year anniversary. I said in the second episode that we needed a guy to defend the Tatum's, the Giannis's, the you know, the KDs, those guys. And we finally have a guy with the size. Now, whether he has the ability or not is yet to be seen, but I I love that we got a guy who potentially could defend the best forwards in the league. Well, like defending good players is important. Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. We haven't been able to do it for five years. So, uh, Matt Young, sneakily very important yeah, player. Yep, bring him back. I'm a fan of bringing back. Look, ties for Young. Uh, let's call it in. Let's call it in right now. Um, or one of the one of the other backup bigs for Thaddeus Young. Get him back in that locker room. Uh, quick, smart. Um, Tony East, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the Pacers. You can find Tony at Tony R East on X. Hard to say X. Still want to say Twitter. Uh, and the Locked On Pacers podcast. Tony, thanks for being with us. It was my pleasure. I hope the Australian listeners enjoyed what they perceived to be an accent. <laughs> <laughs> certainly is where uh, we sound completely normal. Trust me. For Alex, I'm Adam Webster. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again next time. <laughs>